Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be in this chapter today. So verse 6 is our starting point. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now that's just easy to slip past that little phrase, a city full of idols. And we think, how old-fashioned, how quaint, how irrelevant, how... Middle Eastern, how Asian, you know, do you think of little wooden and metallic figurines hanging here, there, and incense burning? And we don't walk around any of our cities and think, well, look at that, it's full of idols. We don't think that, do we? That just means that we're blind to the idols pervading every aspect of our life in our so-called modern, sophisticated Western culture and we're blind because the, that's the way they want it. The idols are just the shop fronts of spiritual entities, fallen angels, sons of God who don't want to be seen and they hide behind their shop fronts and they continue to update those shop fronts to keep them attractive to customers. And so another way of saying what we've just said there, another way of describing Athens would be a city full of gods. For the idols are just the fronts for the gods. And because the so-called gods, who are really rebellious angels, because they're spirit and thus they're invisible to flesh and blood, they have to have something in between them and us and that's where the idols come in. Something which can connect with the, the idols with their followers. And so as we go on today, I'll simply refer to the idols as the gods because it's the idols and the intentions of the gods behind the idols, it's their malevolent spiritual intent rather than what men have made with their own hands. That's what we need to know about. And so we need to know what these gods were trying to do and we need to see what fruit came from their ideas and we need to see if those ideas and philosophies and theologies still exist and what does the Bible say about it. So we've got Paul saying, there were many, many idols. The city's full of them. And it'd be too much in one sermon to just refer to, to, to talk about all of them. So we'll just go down. There's three main streams and three key figures. And you'll know them from your Bible. There's Baal, there's Asherah, and there's Molech. Three main streams. And you know that Israel battled these guys all throughout their history. But it wasn't just in Israel because they've been operating under various names since the beginning of humanity, since the times of ancient Mesopotamia, kingdoms of Sumer and Akkad. If you know old history, you'll know, know those names. And we've got Baal in there who is the god of fertility. Basically, he's the god who says, you can make a better living if you worship me. And his worshippers prayed for him to make fertile soil, cause their crops to grow. He's the Lord of rain. And he's also a warrior god who battles against his own gods till he eventually becomes the king of the gods. And the Bible speaks of this Baal and also the plural Baalim or the Baals. The nations and the regions and the cities have their own Baals. And what's his main job? His main job is to be the alternative god to draw Israelites away from trusting in Yahweh to make a living. 
We'll see this in Judges 2, verses 11 and 12. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And what did they do? And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, particularly Baal, who was sort of like the anti-Yahweh. He's the substitute God. He's the instead of God. And he's the one promising more riches and pleasures than Yahweh is able to deliver. And the Bible is quite clear about what happens when you worship that Baal. It led to destruction of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom completely gone and Judah carried off into captivity. And so we've got now in Athens, Paul comes in and it's a city under these Baals because the Athenians don't know the God of Israel because Paul has yet to proclaim it to them. And as we think about that, we think about Australia and we think about the Baal who's been pushing God out of the schools and out of biblically based values in legislation, out of political, out of secular life for some time. And the average Aussie doesn't consider that uh, faith in the triune God is in any way connected with them making a living. Because they've been drawn away from understanding that it's the word of God and the laws of God and the ways of God are the proper source of you being sustained successfully in life. And sadly for many Aussies, they get the same diagnosis as happened in ancient Israel. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Now when you turn away from the one God, what happens? You get a society filled with idols. Because people need to follow something. If it's not God, then it's an ism, you know. Atheism, secularism, communism, fascism, Nazism. Or you can invent your own God so he can be the final authority and can't be questioned. And no matter how irrational your cause, your ideology, your system of thought can't be challenged or changed these days because otherwise you're being hateful. And the gods of political correctness or wokeness just can't be questioned. And comedians got to think very carefully about their jokes now. But where there is one God, there's truth. And where there's more than one God, though, when there's many gods, when there's many Baals, and there's many truths and conflicting truths, what have you got? No truth. Another sign of Baal invading a culture is the turning away from objectivity to subjectivity, from facts to feelings. Oh, what a feeling. You know what we're saying? That's a classic way we're being fed over and over. Feelings, feelings. And words are redefined. What was right is now wrong. Values and standards have guided our society for hundreds of years can be discarded by a single vote of parliament. And also in this world of Athens was a belief that all is God, which is called pantheism. That means the physical world is the ultimate reality and the world is God and God is the world and this world is all we have. And so therefore 
the gods can capture massive cultural compliance with phrases like global warming and climate change because they're threatening the only world we have. And people can talk about the need for population control and the need for an overarching global government to preserve our world for the benefit of all mankind because this world's all we have. And the root of that way of thinking is what the pagans do when they confuse the creator with the creation. If the world is God and man is one with the world, then man is God, which leads to despair. For there's nothing beyond this world to give meaning to our existence. And if the world is broken and the world is God, then God's broken and there can be no repair. And can you see how that way of thinking that we're seeing around us promotes despair in the younger generation? How can there be any hope of redemption or salvation if you're going to drown the lifeguard? And then there's a phrase in Acts 17, a word techni for the creation of idols. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. That's where the word technology comes in. It's made by techne. It's made by technology. Our generation is becoming more addicted to and more plugged into the technology which they have made. And the more you are joined to your computer your device, the more you just become an appendage of your device. The present generation, more than any other, serves its own creation, its new master, the technology. Interesting thought. And then this, after Baal, there's Asherah. That's the second major streams of the gods, and she's sort of like a partner of Baal, and then she... After Baal's come in, she sort of follows after. And she has been named in various countries with titles like the Queen of Heaven, Asherah, Ishtar, Venus, Aphrodite, Astarte, Inanna. Names. She is the most complex goddess. She's the goddess of two big things, sexuality and war and destruction. She is the breaker of rules, the breaker of boundaries, of standards and conventions. She steals. She is the goddess of prostitution, and as such, she protects prostitutes, and she's not above being a prostitute herself. She is the seducer, who is the patron goddess of the tavern, and all substances consumed to produce a sexuality mixed up with intox intoxication. And the there's a little story that puts all of this goddess together and it comes from Sumerian mythology and she gets really angry with her lover and, and causes his death. And then when he's gone, she weeps inconsolably over her loss. Uncontrolled pros promiscuity leads to disaster and she can't say the relationship between the cause and the effect. She rages to get everything she desires and then she's inconsolably sad when what her lust deliver her is broken relationships 
and disaster. And the spiritual entities that work through this goddess break sexuality out of the covenant of marriage. And they've taken what was forbidden and unspoken and taboo and step by step they're introducing it into mainstream culture. And this realm in which she works, the realm of Asherah, that's critical because from the proper use of sexuality comes marriage. And from marriage comes family. And from family becomes solid society and becomes civilization and life. And then this complex goddess is also the goddess of spells, particularly those which redirect or inflame sexual desire. And it's no accident, therefore, that since the sexual revolution of the 60s and the overturning of gender and the weakening of family and the spread of drugs, there's also a rise of the occult. And then we need to mention one other side of the goddess, the transformer. She has this dual nature, you know, I said she's a goddess of sexuality, but she's also the armoured fighter, a symbol of war. So in the one entity, she is both male and female. And think about this, from tablets, way back from the Mesopotamian tablets, we've got this. When I sit in the alehouse, I am a woman. And I am an exuberant young man. Though I am a woman... I am a noble young man. And the concept of gender fluidity, which we think is so modern, finds its origin way back in ancient Mesopotamia. Did you know that the priests of this star, they included men and they took on the appearance of women and the attributes of women with their garments, with their makeup, they even surgically altered themselves. And today, her followers would be called cross-dressers and transvestites non-binary, bi-gender, androgynous. And what comes out of that, the force behind this goddess, is the desire to break conventional female roles and compete with men. And then brings with it a rage. You all heard these phrases, the rage against the patriarchy. You have the rise of warrior women. You have the glorification of the workplace over family. Sexuality devoid of marriage. You have feminization of men and you have this label toxic masculinity. This is where it comes from. And both men and women indoctrinated with her, her ideas of self and self-fulfillment, what are they? They're far more reluctant to get married and they're less able to stay married. And so this, the fruit of this way of thinking is more men and women ending up alone. Does that sound contemporary? Because that's what it was then. And the third major stream of the gods is Molech, the abomination. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And what is that abomination? The most grievous of all acts, the sacrifice of children. And it was far more widely practiced than you might think. You can find this in the temples of ancient Egypt and the shrines of Tahiti, the altar of Mesopotamia, the hanging trees of Germany. It's in Hawaii, it's in India, it's in West Africa, it's in Tibet, the Aztecs, the Celts, the Druids, the Mongolians. Human and child sacrifice, very common. 
throughout pagan culture before Christianity. The young were particularly vulnerable to mistreatment. You know, if you had a kid born who was not, you didn't like the look of or didn't want, they left them in garbage dumps, they drowned them in rivers, they just exposed them out in the, in the wilderness. It wasn't safe to be a child in pagan times. And you think, all right, well, what about the modern world? Well, in 1920, after renouncing Christianity, the newly formed Soviet Union, they were the first state to legalise the killing of unborn children. The Nazis killed one and a half million Jewish children. But that's overshadowed by our once Christian nation. Since January 22, 1973, when the Supreme Court of America legalised the murder of unborn children, they estimate over 60 million have perished. Molech has returned. So the purpose of that brief look at these three main streams of gods is, not, is to make us realise how close things are to this day, that they've been around forever. And it's to help us understand where the ideas that we're going to run across are coming from, to understand their spiritual roots and to help us avoid their heresies, help us avoid any consideration that they're any good and help us avoid falling into the traps of the strongholds of thought because there's, there's ideas that gather around these thoughts. And let me encourage you, make no mistake, the message that Paul is going to proclaim here in Acts 17 to these pagan Athenians, to that pagan world, turned that world upside down. Over the next 300 years, the faith and the life and the message of the followers of Jesus kicked out Baal, kicked out Ashtoreth, kicked out Moloch from the public life in the Western world, which is what makes Western civilization so different from everything else. The sanctity of human life is affirmed, Children are no longer disposable. Women are recognised and protected. Followers of Jesus, what a f amazing things they've done over the years. They're the people who started hospitals and universities and schools and provided for widows and orphans in their distress and made possible just the whole, just made science possible. It takes hours to list all the positive fruit that comes from a Christian way of looking at life. In contrast, to the gods, the Ishtar, the Baals, the Ashtoreth and Moloch. What do they, they want to do? Make money, control the world and destroy it. Let's get some chaos, let's get some confusion, let's get some disaster. So now we're going to look at what is Paul's answer to such a, a pagan world. So verse 17. So he reasoned in the, in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others said, well, I think he's talking about foreign gods. And they said this because, Jesus, because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him, and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is 
that you are presenting because you are bringing strange ideas to our minds and to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They spent hours on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see you. I see that you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so here is now our answer to the world we've got here. Number one point, there is a creator. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And I can't say it highly enough how fundamental and significant it is to accept this fact. If you deny the existence of a creator God, then that opens the door for any heretical point of view. Number one, there's a creator. Number two, you don't make God up in the form which you want him to be and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else as if he needed anything. I mean, how self-centered we are. We think God owes us. We think God ought to be happy we turned up today to worship him. We ought to be happy we put anything in the plate. But we can offer him nothing. Nothing valuable except a humble and a contrite heart of worship and thanksgiving. You don't make up God in the form you want him to be. Point number three, we owe our very existence to God. For from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So I ask you, did you give yourself life? Do you keep your lungs working? Do you keep your blood circulating? Do you keep your immune system fighting germs? Do you keep your liver detoxifying? Your digestive system providing you nourishment? Who in here chose the colour of their eyes? Who chose how tall they are? Who chose their metabolism? Who chose how hairy they are? We owe our very existence to God. And point number four, God's placed a yearning for connection with him within us. God did this so, oh, that's what comes after this is important. God did this so, he did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. You do have to reach out for God. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live, live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offering. And it's this yearning for connection with the Creator, which is where the enemy likes to attack and give you a, a false satisfaction for the yearning for the Creator which you have. And the worst modern false satisfactions are the gender lies, 
the work culture lies, the my body, my choice lies, the hate speech lies and so on. Indulge every sexual act activity you wish, enjoy any combination of relationship style you want, imbibe any substance you want. Make yourself to be a victim who doesn't have to take responsibility for your life because it's always somebody else's fault. That yearning is only satisfied with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we were created, as we said, so that they would seek him. That's why we've been created and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And don't misunderstand how significant it is that the person who created this whole universe wants to have an eternal relationship with you. That's why it's, marriage is a reflection of the relationship with God because it's just you and one person for your whole life because that's what he wants, you and him, for eternal life. And then... In his message, Paul says, point number five, there are consequences. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, turn around, come back to him. For he has set a day when the world, he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And how loud are the ostrich-like voices of those who would deny there are going to be any consequences, who assess what's true by listening to their feelings, what feels right to them. And some people these days state they have a right to declare whether they are a man or a woman or any other state of being, regardless of biology, because they feel that way. And plain reality has to give way to what you feel about it. Because truth is what you perceive it to be. Truth is what you perceive it to be. And you're being hateful if you disagree with what I think it is. And what's the result of that? Objectivity disappears. My friends, we don't proclaim Jesus' message because we feel it. We proclaim it because it's true. A day is coming when God will judge the world with justice. And then Paul gets to the unique difference between all the, the ideologies in the world, every pagan view, the difference between that and Christianity. He has given proof to this by, to everyone by raising him from the dead. And what do we call that these days? Hashtag rose on the third day. Pagan world wasn't impressed then. It's not impressed now. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And if you haven't considered lately how crucial the resurrection of Jesus is to Christian faith, then let's remind ourselves. Because some of the big, some of the thing that gods are, are pushing back against Christianity is our claim to be exclusive, that there is only one way. 
And if you think about it, it's just totally reasonable to promote multiculturalism if you don't have a resurrection. It's narrow-minded to consider that your religion is the only one if you don't have a resurrection. But no other religion has a person who is historically verified who called their own death and resurrection before it occurred. Sure, there are myths and legends of people travelling to the underworld, trampling the gates of Hades, but they're all pulp fiction, much like Marvel Comics franchise, because that's how pagan people like to describe their heroes. But if you take the Bible as historical documents, which they are, you're going to see a more realistic, unexpected story with an unexpected result. You're going to see a group of Jews all fired up. Oh, we've got a Messiah. He's going to bring the glory back to Israel. He's going to evict the oppressors with decisive power and then squish. You'll see this group of Jesus' closest friends completely disillusioned and in despair when he gets wiped out. Another Messianic figure come and gone in the most disgraceful way you can do it, crucified on a cross. And then, you know, well, if he's going to be resurrected, he should do something which will enable it to be validated. And so what does he do? He comes back to women. They were not considered the authorities. And then even his closest buddies tell this guy, Thomas, they've seen him. And he says, no, I'm not going to believe that until I see the wounds and put my hand on his, his side. And then you've got... The mindset of Jews, think about this, your Messiah's coming back, wonderful. What? This guy's been in a grave. Three days, he'll smell. He'll be decomposed. That's not the Messiah that we're after. He's a conquering Messiah. And then, you know, to preserve the memory of Jesus, they didn't really need a resurrection to keep his memory alive. I mean, we have people we love and we talk about them after they've gone and here's books they've written and we have stories about them. And, you know, goodness knows, uh, the teachings of Jesus would have survived. The Sermon on the Mount was great. The moral teachings would have been great. And then you get Paul, a misogynistic Jewish zealot, so opposed to the resurrection stories, putting Christians to death. But what happened to these squished guys is they were all transformed, transfixed by the resurrection of Jesus. Think about who was the hardest guy to convince. James, the brother of Jesus. You know, I know, I know many brothers who try to tell their other brothers they are the Messiah, but, <laughs> but no, what a hard sell for the actual brother of Jesus who knows him so well to, uh, to believe that he's the resurrected Jesus. But that's what Josephus, a historian of the day, tells us. James was convinced that his brother was the Messiah. And so the resurrection of Jesus is totally believed by his disciples, believed so much that they'd be willing to die for that because it was just so true. And from that belief and the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you get the worldwide church born. The cornerstone of it, the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. And it's the encouragement of knowing that which enabled people to go to their deaths for their faith. But there's more. 
the fact that Jesus demonstrated in his own body with his own life that it actually was possible for someone to come back to life is the encouragement to us because it means that one day we will be resurrected. And it's the encouragement to know that we're going to meet people who have gone before us. And so we finish off. Not everyone believed in Paul's message at Athens, but some did. At that Paul left the council, some of the people became followers of Jesus. Some of them became followers of Jesus and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And so we learn from this story that if we speak up as Paul did, some will believe. And so let's speak up. The gods may be returning, but we know the one who evicted them from Western culture. We know the truth that saves. And we know the God who created this whole world and calls us to seek him and reach out for him. So let's trust in this resurrection, really trust this, in the face of what's going to come against us. For it promises us our own resurrection into an eternity with him in heaven. Will you pray with me? Most wonderful creator, God, we are greatly encouraged by your demonstration, by your resurrection, to know that one day we also will be resurrected. And we place our trust in you right now. We know that when we're right with you, when we've turned away from our sins in genuine sorrow and when we've determined to follow you and your teaching, we know that when we've invited you to come into our hearts and lives, we know we will have all the power we need to live in these days. And we know we will have a relationship with the God who created this wonderful world for all eternity. And so we praise the name of Jesus. And we pause in quietness for a while just to make sure we've got our relationship with the resurrected Jesus sorted out. <laughs>